Good morning. I'm Ted, the other pastor here at the Church of Blue Ridge. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue with our sermon series, Flourish, Flourish, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount this fall and Matthew's Gospel account. And you'll see the title on the screen, Discipleship Distinctive. Discipleship Distinctive. I'll explain what that means here in a moment. Now, how many of you like salt? How many of you get the salt shaker just about every meal? You prefer salty food. Well, I'm not one of those people, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I'm a northerner of northern descent. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I'll never forget the very first Christmas I spent with Jen's family. Uh, we were engaged, so this was our engaged Christmas. It was uh, December of 1998, and I got to have my first southern Christmas breakfast. And um, I remember when I came over, Diane had asked me, Ted, have you ever had country ham? And I said, no, but I love ham. <laughs> I didn't realize it, it was shorthand for salt, solid salt. <laughs> I actually like it, though, now. So they, they've done a good job getting me used to it. Again, the breakfast was amazing. The problem was me. I did not have a palate that could handle salt. So it was so distinct. There was no mistaking, mistaking that salt. And, and, of course, the grits and the eggs had a little bit of salt, too. But it was an incredible breakfast. And the reason I mention that is because that's what, that's kind of the big idea, the theme of the passages we'll be looking at today. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to be distinct, just like the salt. There's no mistaking that salt in the food. There should be no mistaking uh, when the world sees us or even in a, a cultural Christian context like we have here in the South that we are the blood-bought children of Jesus Christ, and we've been given something to say to the nations, the gospel. That is what we'll be looking at today. So as disciples, we are called to be distinct. And what would happen today, or say after the service, or this week, we went around to each of your neighbors, you came to my neighbors, to the people you work with, to your non-Christian friends, and we asked them, did you know so-and-so, did you know Ted is a follower of Jesus Christ, what would they say? Would they be surprised? Or would they say, yes, I know that. I can see it. I see it in, in him. I see it in her. Uh, and, and yeah, that's to be a little bit convicting because that's where I've been the last three weeks. I've been holding on to the sermon for three weeks. So God's been uh, convicting the hound out of me. And, and uh, I'm hoping today he will speak to all of us as we continue in this passage. You'll see the big idea on the screen and this is really just the, the theme that will guide us through the entire passage. Today, Jesus invites his disciples to live counterculture as the outward-focused agents of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time of worship we've already had this morning. Thank you for the celebration of the gospel and your gracious work to save those of us who are your children. Thank you for this group we have here today, members, even new members. We have guests, we have visitors. And as always, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us through your holy word. You know, and only you know, where each of us are at the heart level here this morning, those who are not followers of yours, who, who need that, that harvest of salvation, that initial work of grace to, to lead them to repentance and faith, I pray that would happen even today. And for those of us who are saved, we continue to need to, to apply the gospel to our lives each day, to, to remember the grace. And I pray today you would speak to us, show us the areas in our life where we need to repent 
and turn to you and walk in obedience for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, let us join you today more than ever and be the salt and light that you're calling each of us to be for your glory and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we got a little bit of out, out of order the last few weeks, as most of you know. Uh, we had the scare of Tropical Storm Florence, and it wasn't just Chris Justice, okay? Every weather person, even in the country, said we were supposed to get hit with that thing. So Robert and I erred on the side of caution. We don't regret that, and we canceled the service two weeks ago. So this is that sermon. So essentially, we're going backwards from where Donnie Mathis preached last week, and the reason is because this is a, a sermon that introduces the rest of the, most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that really sets up the body of Jesus' sermon, again, of how life works best. And we have the first stop as far as the encyclopedic content of the sermon, as far as the subject base, we had the first stop last week, which was dealing with anger. And so today we're going backwards to pick up where we left off. And so look with me uh, at the beginning of chapter 5. You'll see uh, that a, a few weeks ago we looked at the Beatitudes. And we talked about how these Beatitudes are really the preamble of the whole sermon. They're, they're an invitation for those of us who are followers of Christ to trust him and to join him in mission. Because God has a plan for our lives uh, on this side of salvation, but even before heaven, for us to flourish. For us to flourish as humans as we were meant to be way back in, cre in creation. And in doing that, and trusting God, and letting go of our pursuits of the world's values, and, and, and embracing the values represented in the Beatitudes, uh, remembering the fact that Jesus has already taken our fall for us. Every one of those Beatitudes gives us that value of human flourishing that the soldier of the kingdom of God should embrace, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it contrasts the world's values. Why? Because every one of those, Jesus so faithfully tells us something about heaven, something we already have. And as I mentioned those several weeks ago, Jesus has taken the fall for us already. That's why we can let go and live life according to his design. And then as we get to uh, the eighth beatitude, that's the one that really catches our attention. You'll see it there in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then in verse 11 and 12, he, he amplifies that final, that eighth and final beatitude. And he says, blessed are you. And what's interesting there, and this, this is setting us up for today's passage, is all of those beatitudes are given in the third person. And then with uh, the ninth beatitude there in verse 11, he switches from third to second person. And he amplifies that final one, that one that it's like, hey, okay, Jesus, I'm following you up until that point, but this word persecuted, I don't like that. I'm, did, did, I, did I sign up for that? And, and you see how he encourages. You can almost see him looking from the crowd down to his disciples, Turning to that second person, that encouragement, that comfort. Blessed are you when others revile you on my account. And that takes us right into our passage today, our salt and light passage. But first, look at this passage from Psalm 16. And, and David here just praises God for, for that, that gracious revelation of the path to human flourishing. He says, Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And for those of us as Christians, that's obeying the, the Beatitudes, embracing these. And, and as, a, as a local body, loving one another in such a way as to orient our lives and put our lives on God's tracks for how life works best 
we will realize that as well. We will flourish and God will use us for his glory in this life. Because remember, God did not save us for this life. He saved us for the next one. He's taken the fall. The end is settled. Let us abandon and follow God. And that brings us right into our passage today. Now, uh, back, uh, I was uh, stationed in the Coast Guard, as many of you know. And uh, at the station in Clearwater Beach, if you were to get by the guards and then walk up the front steps to our office, as you open the door, there would have been a, a giant picture, a painted picture, and it was a Coast Guard boat, a small boat, crashing through the waves. And there was a quote there. Now, they don't use this quote anymore. In, case, in fact, they've gotten rid of it because they're, they're the softer Coast Guard these days. But the quote said, we have to go out, but we don't have to come back. And that's true of us as well. That's true of us. How many grandparents have hugged and kissed grandchildren who were heading over to a Muslim or a communist country serving as missionaries today. It's hard, but that's what God has called us to. And it's coming quickly here in our country. In fact, in some places, it's already here. So read with me. We're going to pick up in verse 13. We're going to read through to 16. And this is the famous salt and light passage. This is actually the, the metaphoric application of the Beatitudes. So it connects us back to last, uh, the last time I preached, a long time ago, and forward to what we'll be looking at the rest of the series. So let's read in verse 13. Jesus continuing in the second person, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Now, we could spend a lot of time today, as many theologians, I spent way too much time reading commentaries where they go into so much detail about what salt means and what light means, and it, and it was helpful, but some of it gets a little ridiculous. What Matthew's doing here today is he's simply giving us two parallel metaphors so that we'll understand how we're designed as Christians and what our primary purpose is as those who Christ has saved. Now, salt and light are just common uh, back in 2,000 years ago, very common and well-known domestic metaphors. Salt and light were indispensable in the ancient world. Whether there were poor people or rich people in the crowd, they could have related with and understood what he was talking about. Salt was so precious, as many of you have heard before, it was used as currency and light. Obviously, no electricity. Light took a lot of effort to manufacture. And, and that's why he says the things he says about these two uh, important uh, parts of a daily life of anyone living in that time. They're still important to us as well, but we easily take them for granted. Back then, they didn't take salt or light for granted. So this would have been a much more powerful metaphor or, or set of metaphors uh, for them to use. And again, you're, you're familiar with these. Now, what's, what's really neat in the original language with the two uses of you and 13 and 14 is the you there is emphatic. So we could translate that. You and you alone. There is no one else. And again, Jesus is looking at those who are already saved, looking at his disciples saying, you, you and you alone 
are. You're not going to be. You already are the salt of the world, the light of the world. And, and one of the things that's really neat is, is you look at those two metaphors, and it says the earth and the world. It doesn't say Jerusalem and Judah. And Matthew is known as the most Jewish of the four Gospels. And yet here, even at the beginning, how neat is it that Jesus has the Great Commission in view? He's previewing what, what the sermon will end with. I'm sorry, what the, the gospel will end with, with the great commission. The salt of the whole earth. The salt, or the light of the entire world. And so beautiful metaphors. Uh, light, of course, is one of the most common metaphors in all of the Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament. It is uh, very common and it's always used for truth. Always used for, for gospel truth. And here's a great passage. Again, you know John 8, 12, right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 1, 7, uh, where we're invited that, that his light can now be our light. And here's a beautiful uh, passage from Isaiah 50 where you even see the Messiah mentioned. Look what Isaiah says here. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? If you know anything about the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, the servant is the Messiah. And then look what it says next. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his gospel. And so I ask you, imagine you're a farmer here in Greenville, in Blue Ridge, and you happen to grow a pumpkin the size of a Volkswagen. Are you going to tell anybody? No. I doubt that in this day and age. That's going to be all over social media. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever else they've got these days. You're going to call the news. They're going to come do an interview. And, of course, you're going to enter it in some kind of fair, right? How could, God's doing the very same thing with us. If you are a Christian, God has chosen to save you. The Bible tells us that he made that choice before time even began. He is, and we know the, the lengths that he went to rescue you and I. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper a little bit later today. The cross, that death he died, which Isaiah, of course, describes in detail uh, in those chapters as well. Do you think he wants to hide you under a bucket? Do you think he wants you to be tasteless? Me? No. No, he anticipates and expects for us to go public with the faith and the gospel that he has saved us with. It's the same thing. And so... uh, Matthew's writing here, and, and what Jesus is saying is that saltless salt, by the way, there's no such thing. Salt does not lose its saltiness, and that's the point. That's how ridiculous it is to think of saltless salt. And from God's point of view, that's how ridiculous it is for one of his disciples not to engage in the gospel mission. And he says, basically, at that point, we're good for nothing. Do you want to be good for nothing from God's point of view? I don't. That keeps me up at night. That worries me. And then with the light passage. Again, we talked about they did not take light for granted. Oil was an expensive commodity. It was in short supply, especially to most of these people he's talking to who were impoverished. So if they went through all the effort and cost to light a lamp in their house, uh, the, again, city on a hill, the light, to light up the whole house, would they then go and take a bucket and put it on top of it? That's ridiculous. And that's his point again. Those of us who claim to be Christians, who God has saved, if we're not engaging 
the gospel mission. And in whatever way God's called us, we're all gifted differently. We all have different mission fields. But if we are not actively engaging in evangelism and the sharing of the gospel, both here in our lives and every aspect and across the world, we're bucket heads. We're bucket heads. We're good for nothing bucket heads from God's point of view. Now, we don't lose our salvation. We know that. We know that. But I don't know about you. I want to be useful. I want to be used according to how God designed me to be used. And I know you do uh, as well. So let's look at this passage uh, as we start to apply this first section here. This is one that really gets me. This comes from Romans chapter 10. He's quoting Isaiah here as well, as you'll see at the end. But as we read this together... Let this tug at your heart, because this was what Paul was writing. And you'll notice the word they, the pronoun they in each of these clauses. The first three they's refer to lost people. The second two refer to the church. Let's read this together. Again, open your hearts. Let this tug at your hearts. Look at these these questions that Paul is asking. How then will they, the lost, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? And now for us, how are they, the church, to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, consider yourselves sent. Consider yourselves sent. A few... uh, things to talk about. Really, we just got, we have to let our light shine. You might remember that back in March when, uh, for those of you who were at that family meeting and uh, Pastor Robert was sharing with us the new missional community model, uh, he talked about the cell groups. He said he gave us two reasons why cell groups exist. The first is, of course, the study and application and the accountability of the Word of God in each of our lives, Discipleship 101. But the second thing, and I want to remind us of that this morning, the second thing he he told us that cell groups exist is so that we can encourage each other and remind each other about sharing the gospel. And so I want to, those of you who are in a cell group, uh, and you can hold me accountable on this, when we meet, let that be a question we make sure we're asking one another. How has your light shined this week? All right, Don't, don't be afraid. It's okay if you say, man, I just haven't. Encourage one another. Hold each other accountable. But please, I I beg of you, especially those of you who are kind of the leader of those cell groups, let that question be asked back and forth each each and every time you meet. How has your light shined this week? How have you been salty this week for the glory of God? And, and just, again, to talk about missional community groups real quick, that's why we switched from the standard small group model to this. We know it's not as liked maybe by some as the old model. Uh, we know it's a little bit awkward and a little bit uncomfortable at times. It's this passage that we did. It's the reason why we did it. This is the call that God has placed upon us. We're not called to be comfortable, all right? We're not called to have our in, this inward focus all the time. We've got to do both. We've got to be di- discipled and grow, but we also need to go And we need to intentionally make sure that we're doing missions both locally and and then as God leads us to the church uh, abroad. So very important. Now, in terms of uh, uh, a little bit of uh, repentance here, I think it's important because I know that's important in my life that we have the opportunity to recognize why maybe for those of us who aren't sharing the gospel or, or just 
aren't doing evangelism for whatever reason. And I'm right here with you guys. I'm not. I got, I've got a long way to go myself. So this is for all of us. But we need to recognize, we need to repent, and we need to remove the barriers uh, that are keeping us from sharing the gospel. So look at the slide up on the screen. And here's the question. Are you a good-for-nothing buckethead? I am sometimes. And that first one really gets me. Here's some of the things that I just ha- discerned in my own heart, in my own walk. Uh, are you too busy, distracted, or disorganized uh, in your life? That's the one that really, really gets me. And if you're anything like me, I go through cycles. There'll be a, a good time where I'm, I'm sharing the gospel, connecting, I'm thinking about it, and then I'll go through a time where I'm not. It kind of ebbs and flows. But that first one is, is, is the one that really um, prevents me at times from sharing the gospel. Uh, second, living with unchecked habitual sin will, will squelch that fire, will quench uh, the light and, and make you dim, uh, make me dim. Third, neglecting time with the Lord and his word. I know this is a struggle. Uh, again, uh, typically a third of all evangelical Christians uh, don't read the Bible. I mean, read the Bible on a regular basis. Only 33%. Folks, we've got to have that fire kindled in our hearts if we're going to be the light that shines to the nations, right? We cannot give what we don't have. We've got to be filled with the Spirit, which comes through time in His Word and time in prayer daily. Fourth, uh, do we prefer the inward-focused church, the inward-focused Christianity? Um, It's so easy, especially for those of us who are introverts like myself. It's so easy to to be inwardly focused. We've got to overcome that. And and again, that's why we've, uh, we've gone with the missional community model to help with that. And then fifth, do you find yourself making excuses instead of seeking out opportunities? I know I have at times too. So allow these questions and probably some other ones that you could come up with uh, to really inventory your heart and, and begin that process of recognition, repentance, and removal of these barriers. Uh, now at the church at, at uh, Blue Ridge, we are not in the game of attractional ministry. That's, we're, we're, we're missional, there's no doubt. Granted, we want to be attractive, and we've got a team of volunteers and staff members who work hard on Sunday mornings to make us attractive, but the reality is we don't advertise much, and we shouldn't have to. Why not? Look at all these beautiful faces in the crowd. Danny, here's the advertisement. John, Halen, right? Noah, Cheyenne, Natalie, Ted, and Ed, on and on and on. If we are, are obeying this passage and being the light and the salt that God has called us to and going public with our, with our faith, that's what God's going to use to bring those who need to hear the gospel and to grow our church for his glory. So here's some opportunities for you. I come not just with platitudes, but actual opportunities for you to engage in mission uh, this morning. You'll see them on this slide. At Blue Ridge High School, right down the street, God has opened the door for us to be a mentor. You can spend a half an hour on your lunch break with a, with a boy or girl, I guess young man, young woman at Blue Ridge High School uh, starting next week or in two weeks. They are desperate for mentors. Uh, we started. Some of you already are doing it. They love it. God has opened the door. You come and see me if that's something you might be interested in. They do it during lunch, so it would be 12 to 1230 or 1 to 1:30. God has just opened the door to Skyland Elementary to our church, and the East Tiger Bridge uh, Mitchell Community Group is taking the lead on that, Danny and Randall's group, and, and they're uh, taking food bags there each week. Uh, also, a sister church of ours, Ebenezer Welcome, has started a good news club there, and they have asked that we as a church provide one volunteer a week 
uh, to help that. I know the missional community group's going to help with that, but I think they're going to need some more volunteers. So even if you're in another missional community group, there is an opportunity there each week to go and share the gospel with elementary students in a public school. So see Danny if you're interested in that. Also, they want to start a mentoring program there. It would be a Lunch Pals-type mentoring program, probably. That's what they do with elementary. Uh, Tigerville Elementary, our Tigerville Missional Community Group, has connected there. There's already a Good News Club there, and um, they need help. Lindsay's going to be jumping in and helping with that. And uh, I actually reached out to Lindsay yesterday morning as I was finishing up my sermon. And I said, hey, I want to say something about this. Give it as an opportunity. Do you mind? Do you guys need more help? And so she said, let me check. And this is the text that came back from uh, the woman who heads up. She said, I'm in tears right now. This is yesterday morning. She said, I'm in tears right now because that is exactly what I prayed for this morning. We have 133 children right now for a school. This is unbelievable. It's hard for me to teach if I don't know the children are being watched over carefully. We are using every table now at Good News Club. This Thursday, I have to make a new table, but I have no one, uh, no volunteer to fill it. I also have another lady who says she can't do it anymore. All this to say, she needs at least two people each week at Tigerville Elementary. Maybe you are that person who can jump in there. If you're interested, if you want to ask more questions about that, um, see Lindsay. Lindsay will uh, get you connected uh, to Brenda there. Also, uh, we have a fall festival coming up. We're doing a joint fall festival with Double Springs Baptist Church. We're asking all of our people, even if you're not a member, plan to volunteer as we join with our sister church uh, to reach the community. You can see Carrie Lee for more information on that. And my old church, Pendleton Street Baptist Church, is reached out to us. They're doing another mission trip to the Philippines next April. There's brochures on the front table uh, that you can get. I went on this trip two times while I was a pastor there. Uh, Ed Lee standing up in the back. Everyone say hi, Ed. Ed went on that trip. Olivia, raise your hand, Olivia. Olivia went on that trip. It's an incredible trip. You get to uh, engage in um, vacation Bible school. They're in a very impoverished uh, fishing village. They're building a third floor on their school, and they've planted two churches that they need evangelism help with, and that's next April. It's an awesome trip. You can come see one of us three to find out more information or see Kendra Irish. I don't think she's here this morning, but she can tell you more about that. And then, of course, just join one of our five missional community groups, and Robert, Pastor Robert, will help you with that as well as we engage in mission together. So there's some real-life opportunities uh, for us to connect But let us end this first section of the sermon with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we know he was a martyr during the Holocaust uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look what he says. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. That stings. And that comes from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So it was connected to this passage. So we've seen this first section. Again, God's calling us to be countercultural. We've seen our mission, right? Now let's look at the means. And this is the second section. Uh, Donnie, I'm not going to spend as much time on this because Donnie did a good job of previewing it uh, last week. These verses right here, 5, 17 through 20, is the introduction to the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why he had to pick it up because I wasn't able to set them up the week before as a result of Tropical Storm Florence or Hurricane Florence. So he touched on it last week before he got into his passage on anger. So let us read uh, verses 17 through 20. And by the way, now you'll see him switch from the second to, uh, uh, to the first person. Do not think 
I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? Right away, verse 17, the beginning of it, he says, do not think that. This is actually a literary device to clear up any misconception. Now, even though the Sermon on the Mount's at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has probably been ministering up in Galilee for at least a year at this point. And as you continue to read Matthew, you'll see some of the things that actually happened before the sermon, and he was making the Pharisees very, very upset. And so they were already accusing him of disregarding the Old Testament, of disregarding the Old Covenant. Also, there's been scores of false messiahs who would come, and and typically a false messiah would have no use for the, the written word of God because he wants to start his own brand of teaching. That's why he's false. And so Jesus is coming to clear it up, right? Clear it up. Don't think for a minute that I have come to get rid of the Old Testament. Now, when you see the law or prophets, we've already talked about that shorthand, uh, for the Old Testament, for the Jewish scriptures, for the first 39 books of the Bible. But I believe he's referring to something much more than just simply the Old Testament. He's referring to all of the Old Covenant, everything that God has been doing in history up until this point in, the, in, the, in his mission of redemption through his people. I have not come to destroy that. On the contrary, I've come to fulfill it because it all points to and leads to me. Now, here's a, uh, a map on the screen. You'll recognize it. It's our beautiful state of South Carolina. And uh, several years ago, I went on a third grade trip to Jones Gap with Isaac and his school. And I remember the ranger looking up at that mountain range that's, that's right there that meets you right when you come into the, the entrance of the park there. And he said, every drop of rain that falls on the other side of that runs down into the Gulf of Mexico. He said, but every drop of rain that falls on this side runs through our great state all the way to the ocean. And we have this incredible river system. Several of these rivers are here in Greenville. The three branches of the Saluda River all form into the Saluda. And then the Saluda runs down the state, and it joins up with the Broad River, and then it becomes the Congaree. And then the Congaree continues down and joins with the Wateree, and they become the Santee River. And the Santee River takes that fresh water out to the ocean. Simply put, Jesus is the Santee River. All that has happened before everything in the Old Covenant, all the covenants, all the prophecies, all the the types have all come to this one point in history where he says, I'm here to fulfill them. They all point to me. They all find their fulfillment in me. This, friends, is the proof text of how the Old Covenant relates to, connects to, and becomes one with the new covenant, what it was all about all along. And you see the Pharisees, oh my goodness, the Pharisees were the religious professionals of the day. They were hypocrites. They mastered in the external obedience of the word of God, but their heart was dead. I have a front porch at my house that a year ago I became concerned because that thing is dry rotted. 
And I knew how much it would cost to replace it, and I didn't want to spend that money. So I went to Home Depot, and I found this stuff called Deckover. And my friends, Deckover is not even paint. Do you know what it is? It's pancake batter. And it is awesome. Because if you come to my house today, you think my deck is brand new. Is the dry rot still there? Absolutely. The Pharisees were my front porch. As Jesus will say later in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, they were whitewashed tombs, beautifully decorated tombstones. But in the inside, men, dead men's bones. They were hypocrites, right? And that, a lot of this is contrasting those men and what he has come uh, to fulfill. And, and what they did was they were so obsessed with the law, which was the, the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, that they didn't look past it. They, got, they made it into this legalistic, work-based way to control people and maintain a good lifestyle, as most of false Christianity does, even to this day. But they neglected the prophets. So Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill not just the law, but the prophets. Why is that important? Because all of the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the writings, interpreted and applied the law, which was looking forward to the end, the coming of the Messiah, So he is coming really to teach for the first time in a long time the true application of all of the Old Covenant, not just getting hung up on some legalistic version of Moses. And so there's so much happening, so much deep theology that is beautiful uh, to this passage. Look with me now at two of my favorite, again, there's plenty of places we could have gone, but two of my favorite Old Testament passages uh, in the prophets, looking forward to and anticipating this very moment of the Messiah on earth. The first one comes from Jeremiah. The Lord says this through Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. That would be the the coming Babylonian captivity. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the next one, Ezekiel says this, just a a few years later, he's writing now in Babylonian captivity. He says, and and God's saying through him, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Both of those passages were written about 550 to 600 years before Jesus was born. The new covenant was the plan all along. It was not Jesus doing something odd. It was the Pharisees who neglected to teach the whole counsel of God's word. And so look with, us, look with me back at the passage. You'll see he continues. He's saying, in fact, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant isn't going away. Would any of you build a house, and then after you're done building, building the house, say, okay, let's, let's rip the foundation out from under it. We don't need it anymore. No, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. And and that's what the old covenant is. It's that foundation to the new, to the church, and to God's entire climatic fulfillment of his mission to redeem and save his children. That, my friends, is the meaning of life. So he he pretty much says, hey, not one dot. The iota was the smallest letter in the Hebrew. The dot was was a simple stylistic mark that some would make on certain Hebrew letters. So not even the least marks in the Old Testament are going to be removed. In fact, they're going to continue to be taught uh, until the end. And look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, teach, these uh, commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom. And uh, conversely, whoever does them and teaches them will be great. Now, you read that, and you think it's some kind of ranking system in heaven, right? 
Those who still hold to the full teaching of God will be up here in the kingdom, and those who do not will be down at the bottom. Well, that's not what's happening. This isn't a ranking system. It's just simply a poetic parallelism. And, and those who hold to the word of God, not only do them, but teach them, will be in the kingdom, essentially. Those who don't will be out. They're false. So this is essentially black and white, in or out. And then verse 20, and this is where we're going to end our time here. Verse 20 is the verse that really now launches out into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And just put yourself, before I read it again, put yourself in the shoes, in the place of those first century hearers as much as you can. Because this would have been incredibly shocking for them to hear. Remember, the Pharisees were the revered religious professionals, right? They, on the outside, man, they were untouchable. They were rock stars when it came to fulfilling the law, at least on the outside, as far as we could tell. And look what Jesus says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. At that point, they're like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. There's just no way. Those guys are like major league Christians or, or Jews, however you want to think of it. They're major league. But the, this is really a riddle, to be honest with you, because the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, he uses the, the similar, the same word, right? But the righteousness he's talking about that, that they need to have, which will exceed that of the Pharisees, is not the same righteousness of the Pharisees. That's the clue to understanding this riddle, because their righteousness is unrighteousness. It's hypocrisy. It's dry rot just like my deck. But the righteousness that Jesus is talking about is the righteousness that he and he alone gives. It's his righteousness that comes from the the fact that he is the God-man, the perfect, the sinless one who would die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rise from the grave to newness of life, defeating death for all of us who call upon his name. It's a beautiful alien righteousness, as Martin Luther calls it, that is imputed and deposited into our account at the moment of our salvation. That's the righteousness he's talking about, not their false righteousness. Turn really quickly to the next book of the Bible in Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This gives us some insight into the righteousness of the Pharisees so we can see what it is not what Jesus, what Jesus is not talking about in terms of his righteousness that, that we need to be in heaven. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. Chapter 7. And he, Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophecy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you, are, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. That helps us to understand the righteousness that Jesus is talking about that we need begins in the heart, not on the outside. It's not deck over like the Pharisees' righteousness, all these works. It begins in the heart, just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were pointing us to. Because that's where salvation comes from. That's where biblical Christianity begins in the heart. And then from the heart works outward in authenticity, not phoniness, not hypocrisy. 
And that then sets us up for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, the encyclopedic content will follow. Uh, Donnie already preached anger last week. Next week, uh, I'm combining lust and divorce into a sermon about sexual immorality. Uh, And then Robert will preach the last three sections, oaths, retaliation, and really the point of all of it, love your enemies as yourself, the vertical aspect uh, of the law. And then we'll continue in the chapter six and, and even chapter seven and see now the long version. If the, the Beatitudes is really the short version, right, the intro version, the rest of the sermon now is the long version on how life works best. Why? Because God knows. Oh, come on. That's not going to pick up in the micro, microphone. Let's try it again. God knows. Now, some of you are with us for the first time, so you're off the hook, but thank you. That was great. God knows how life works best, and we will continue to see week after week the plan God has for each of us to flourish as humans on this side of the cross. Now, a few application points, and then we'll be done. Uh, Just to to remind you of a quote from Jonathan Pennington, Donnie mentioned this last week, and this is the point of it all. A whole person behavior that accords with God's nature will, and his coming kingdom. Don't you like it when the description on the outside of the box matches what's in the box, right? It's not like Applebee's where you see these great pictures in the menu and then what comes to your table, it's like, oh my goodness, right? No, no, we want to be authentic and in accordance in every way. Uh, look at this passage. This comes from Luke 5, and I love this because this is the, the Luke's recording of Matthew's conversion. So this is that great story when Jesus ate with the tax collectors. And I love it when people lose their mind. We're seeing a lot of people in our society today lose their minds. And I know it's not funny, but in a way it is. It's like, oh my goodness. These Pharisees lose their mind with Jesus. Look what they say, what the passage says here. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, you could translate it as, I have not come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners to repentance. Uh, so in- incredible for us. Um, and there's, there's several other things that I could say, but I want to bring us now to the invitation. Because what we've seen here, just to wrap up, are two reminders of how we are called to be distinct. And the first one, just to review, we're called to counterculture. Uh, of the world, right? That's the salt and light. We're called to be distinct amongst the world. But the second uh, passage with the Pharisees, and this is very pertinent here in our culture in the South, we are also called to be distinct in a Christian culture, right? That's kind of what the Pharisees had going on. It was almost like the South. There was this false version of Judeo-Christianity, and Jesus is calling them to go against the grain, to radical counterculture, to be distinct even amongst not just the world, but the false Christian culture. One of the most frustrating things in Greenville is everybody's saved, right, that you talk to. And yet 75% of Greenville County is unchurched. Do you know that? And the 25 that is, there's a lot of false conversions there. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of deck over porches like mine. And God's calling us to be distinct in that culture as well. And we do that by obeying his word and uh, putting our lives upon his tracks for his glory. So the invitation is twofold. 
And we'll launch into this invitation by looking at one last passage, one of our favorites from Ephesians 2. Paul writes here, for, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so for those of us who are saved, that verse 10 is for us. We weren't saved by works. We know that. We amen that. That's what makes us distinct as Christians. But we were saved for good works. And the primary good work that God has saved us all for, the mission that belongs to every one of us, regardless of how we're gifted, what we do for a living, uh, again, all demographic features, the, the mission we all have is the gospel, to take the gospel, to be salt and light here and everywhere for the glory of God. So won't you obey, won't you join me and hold me accountable too in obeying that, that we would embrace the work God has given us. And then for those of you who are not saved, this verse has the gospel in it. It's beautiful. It's not about works. It's a gift. And that gift is available to you even today. God is calling upon you to recognize, repent, and believe the good news. And that's what we're about here. And I say the same thing every week because this is what we're about. We want to have that conversation with you. We want to share the gospel with you. So if you have any doubts about your salvation, even if I'm, I or Robert might think you're already saved, don't be ashamed. Seek us out today or anytime this week. Uh, any of the children in here, talk to your parents first. We'll be glad to come alongside your families and, and share with you as well. Uh, but come and seek us out. This is serious. Life can change in a moment change in a moment. It's so fragile. Don't put off uh, this most important matter of salvation. So as we, uh, I'm going to invite Danny to come back up. Actually, no, I'm going to, we have one more song? Yes. Lord's Supper first. We do have one more song, but now we're going to go right into experiencing gospel. So I'm going to pray as Robert comes up to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And, and, and wherever you are, just that last passage and all we've studied, God is calling us all to respond this morning to the gospel, whether as a believer to take it out or as a lost person to repent and believe. So please come and find me even today if you want to talk about either of those. And just remember all those opportunities up there. Go to the appropriate person if you feel God might be calling you to engage in one of those missions and spread the word as well. Even if you can't do it, look around, see who's not here today and go find them and let them know about it this week. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us as orphans. You gave us your spirit, the third person of the triune God, the Emmanuel in us, God with us. And then you gave us your word. And Father, my prayer for us all is that you would use your word to stir us up. Again, those who don't know you to salvation and those of us who do to obedience. Let us not be guilty like the Jews who continually disobeyed your commandments and chose experience over truth. Let us keep the truth of your word at the forefront of our lives each and every day as families, as missional community groups, and as a local church, Lord God. Father, move in us today and fill us even in this time as we get to celebrate this most wonderful time of worship, your glorious supper. Father, we love you, and we praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.